You're listening to the New Life Church Sunday Morning Podcast. We're a family of believers in Anderson, Missouri, that want to experience God in a real way, both inside and outside the walls of a building. For more Sunday messages, upcoming events, or to get in touch, visit new-life-church.net. So in case I don't, in case I forget to reference this at the end, um, uh, a theme throughout the character we're going to look at this morning as we continue our series of stewardship uh, is prayer. And so uh, I want to reference this book to you. Uh, Scotty Smith, Tony knows Scotty, and uh, he's, a, he's a pastor and he just, God has just anointed him with this passion for prayer in his life. And what he's done is he's taken for 365 days out of the year, he's taken scriptures and then written prayers. So if you're like me, sometimes you get up and you're like, I know I need to pray and I just don't even know where to start. You know, you're like that cold start engine just cranking over and over and over that's just not catching. And you know you need to pray, but you're just not getting there. And this is a great resource. And I just would highly recommend for you to pick one up, to order one, whatever. Um, it's been blessing me as I've been reading this. Uh, daily, and uh, it's just grounded in Scripture. It's grounded in the truth of the gospel. And uh, he just writes a simple, real prayer from a guy who knows he needs Jesus. And it's more times than not, as these things work, it's exactly the prayer I needed for that day. So I just wanted to make sure that you guys knew about this as a great resource um, in addition to Scripture, not in place of. So last Sunday, we began a stewardship series. And, uh, well, actually, I told you I think it was going to be three weeks. It's actually going to be four, because on July 1st, Tony's going to deliver the message for us. And it's going to be more along the lines of stewardship as a local body, as a church together. And so I know that's a vacation week for a lot of people, a holiday weekend. The day before, we'll be doing river ministry. Just love for you to be here, as many that are in town, because it's, I think it's important for us to hear as a body how we can be good stewards of the gospel, good stewards of God's work in our life, uh, what he gives us as a body, not just as individuals. But last Sunday, we started this and just talked about just a definition of stewardship and what it is and why we should be a good steward. We looked at The reasons why being that God is the designer, the creator, the sustainer of all things. And Romans 11.36 clearly lays that out for us. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It doesn't leave anything out. It says all things. God created us. We are his creation. He designed us to be good stewards from the very beginning. The very first directive that he gave Adam and Eve in the garden. He blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. And because all things are from him, through him, to him, our talents are his. He wired us to be who we are with the passions that we have, with the gifts that we have. He gives us the health and the ability, the mental clarity, the dexterity of fingers, whatever you're using to provide your, for your family, for yourself. He gives you all of those things to be able to do that. And it's all from him. And then we had the illustration of, of we're, the, we're the delivery people, like the FedEx 
is or like UPS is. So that God gives us the gifts, bestows us on us, and we are to be deliverers of those gifts. They're not ours to keep. You know, I don't, if I was the FedEx person and you gave me something to ship somewhere, it's not mine to keep. No, I'm just a deliverer. And everything is God's. And and we get to be managers, stewards, deliverers of those gifts to the people in our lives, our spouses, our children, our neighbors, our brothers and sisters in Christ, strangers at the grocery store, wherever. That stewardship, we also looked at how stewardship is worship. Good stewardship is worship. That worship is an appropriate response to who God is, his character, his gifts. And by us appropriately responding to him in that, we are being good stewards. And why be a good steward? Well, we were created to be, number one. That's how we were designed. And in that place, as we are being good stewards of his gifts on our life and our relationship from him, that is the only place that we will actually feel satisfaction and joy and peace on this earth. God has asked us to, not only were we designed to, he's asked us to, and it's the best investment we can make. We talked about what an ROI is, a return on investment, and that Jesus gave us the ultimate investing advice out there. And, and that, yes, there are investments on this earth, and, and not that they're a bad thing, but the ultimate investment, our guaranteed 100% return on investment is in Matthew 6.20, storing up yourselves for ourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves cannot break in and steal. And so this morning, let's continue our look at stewardship. But today I want to do kind of like what we did on Mother's Day where we looked at a character in the Old Testament. We looked at through the book of Ruth. And we saw how Ruth was a good steward of the gifts that God gave her. And while we didn't emphasize stewardship that day, if you go back through that book in your quiet times this week, you can see how she was a good steward with what God gave her, the decisions she had to make along the way. The next right small choice. And today we're going to look in the chapters 17 through 19 in 1 Kings. We're going to look at the a little bit of the life, kind of a high-level view of one of my favorite characters in the Bible, Elijah. Um, in fact, we have six boys, and, and out of all of their names, we, we, we discussed and prayed about what their names should be. And I just finished studying this character in-depthly, in and, and uh, our son Elijah was about to be born, and I'm like, that's his name. <laughs> and Dee was like, are you sure? And I'm like, Yes, that's his name. <laughs> Please, you know, obviously if she would have really rejected, I would have listened. But <clears throat> I just felt so impressed about this character in his name, meaning that basically God is God. God is God. God is who he says he is. He is God. And so we can, we can get tripped up in this character, if you're familiar with them, if you've been in church, if you've studied your Bible, and you, and you can think that, I mean, this guy's like the Superman of Old Testament. I mean, just did these unbelievable things. And there's no way that God would use me in that way. There's no way that I can even relate to this guy. But I'd like to show you this morning how he was every bit as real as us. Every bit as real. And so, I really don't even have any slides this morning. This is more like 
story time, you're welcome to open your Bible to 1 Kings 17. Make sure that what I'm saying is true and accurate. Please always check me. Um, but uh, this morning is just going to be me sharing the highlights of this story and, and God's work in his life. And even when he failed. So we're introduced to Elijah. A uh, couple of observations about him real quick. He's a country boy. He's a country boy. Second uh, Kings 2 describes him as a hairy man with a leather, or, leather belt around his waist. All right? So ladies, there's hope if you have one of those. Okay? <laughs> hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. It's okay. Not all is lost. There are no, pension, there are no parents mentioned uh, in, for Elijah. And, and that can indicate in scriptures... I mean, if you look at a lot of the other Old Testament characters, their parents are mentioned, where they came from, their lineage. And in this case, it's not mentioned. So that could tell us that he's a foreigner. That God is using a foreigner because there's no record, there's no indication, there's no mention of it. It's just all of a sudden he's on the scene. And the very first thing he does is he confronts the absolute most wicked king Israel has ever had. In fact, two times in just a couple of short verses, scriptures is very clear to mention that King Ahab was the worst. Okay? We joke about what is the worst, or that is the worst. Or what? No, this guy really was. And then, to top it off, he married the absolute worst woman on the planet. And she incited him into being even more wicked and more evil. Okay? So this guy was doubling up on how wicked he was. Elijah comes into the scene. This is all we know about him so far. And he confronts him and says, hey, it's not going to rain. Hi, I'm Elijah. It's not going to rain till I say so, till God tells me it's going to happen. That is all. See you later. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> I mean, that's a gutsy move, isn't it? I mean, even if God laid that on your heart for you to walk into the president's office and give him some really bad news like, hey, the economy of the nation is going to tank guaranteed for the next three years. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be the worst. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you have a little bit of reserved feelings like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to have to be that guy that everybody's going to label your faces on every single news headline, every social media post. This was the person that said this was good going to happen. This is, this is the guy. Everybody's going to want a scapegoat. Guess who's going to be that guy? Elijah. Next, God asked him to go camp out by a creek. Go camp out in the middle of a wilderness, in the middle of a drought, in the middle of a famine. Hey, go hide out by the creek. There'll be water there. I'll make sure you've got water for as long as I have you there. And I'm going to give you food in the morning at night. Pizza delivery. No. Ravens. Ravens are going to bring him meat and bread in the morning and at night. Okay, if you know much about history and, and scripture in the Old Testament, ravens are actually an unclean bird. So here you have God using the most probability of a foreigner to insert into the scene, into his people, the nation of Israel, to start this process. And then he's going to take care of this guy in the middle of the wilderness, all by himself, in the middle of a drought, a famine, and said, I'm going to have unclean birds deliver food for you every day. Okay. I mean, what, what's going through Elijah's mind here? Stop and think about that. 
What would be going through his mind? What would be going through your mind? At this point, this is what God wants me to do. He could have been like, no, that sounds ridiculous. I think I'm going to go over to here where I know there are some deer. I'd rather shoot one myself and clean it than have a dirty, filthy bird bring me meat. Who knows? Did he get it off the road after the chariots just went by? I mean, where is he getting the meat from? But Elijah obeyed. And you see here, in between the lines, in between the verses, as we put ourselves in these characters' shoes, you see where Elijah is wanting to be the steward of his inner man by trusting God and obeying and doing what he says. As ridiculous as it might seem, as ridiculous as going across the ocean and selling everything you have might seem and feel, being willing to trust and obey and go. When you're in the alone in the woods for a while, what's going to go on in your inner person during that time? What kind of business do you think God's going to do with you in those moments, those quiet moments of the night, of the day? I mean, we can barely sit here for the first five minutes of the sermon before we're feeling restless, right? Let alone weeks on end, months on end alone. What kind of business was God doing with Elijah's heart? Well, next, the river, the creek dried up. All done. I was just like, okay, you brought me here. Now I'm out of water. Now what? I said, okay, next stop. Go to a widow's house. Think about that. In this time, in this culture, going to a widow's house means you're going to the poorest of the poor. During a drought, during a famine, there's no indication that she's got help from any outside source. In fact, when Elijah walks up and says, hey, could you give me a cup of water? She says, okay. And he says, oh, by the way, could you also make me some bread? She's like, I'm literally gathering sticks for the last meal for me and my son so we can eat it and die. And here Elijah comes on the scene having to ask her for the... Do you think he's feeling bad? You think he's feeling a little bad about that? I would be. I'm asking this poor woman for her last meal to feed me instead. It doesn't say that God let Elijah in on this plan ahead of time. And we can jump to that conclusion very quickly. And in my own life and the lives of many others that I know, I have to believe that Elijah just took the next step and God showed him exactly when he needed to know. And rarely before. Because that's how it works in many lives that I know. In Elijah's part, again, trusting in God. I believe in who he says he is. He's the creator and provider of all things. He's called me onto this mission to confront this king, to take part in this. So I'm going to take the next step. I'm going to do the next right, good thing. As silly as it seems, as small as it might seem. Well, God sure enough did provide, as many of you know. Her water never ran out. Her oil never ran out. Her flour never ran out. And God provided. And Elijah was able to then convey to her, hey, until the rain comes again, you're good. God's got you. 
And so that brings comfort. And over time, he's there for a while, Scripture says. We don't know exactly. Later, it indicates that the famine is three plus years, somewhere in there. So we know this is a significant time. He's by the creek, a significant time. He's staying in the spare room of a widow's house. By the way, he's a wanted man. Everybody in the kingdom's after him because the king said so. So he's hiding out. Poor widow might have been thinking, hey, maybe I'll get a reward and some food if I turn him in. Do I believe this guy? Maybe God's working on her inner person too at the same time. Trust in this God that you have forsaken as a nation. Trust in him. He's got you. But over time, her son gets sick and dies. And you think, why? Why, God? It's in those moments that we've all had in our lives where we're wondering why. You've called me here. I'm doing this. I'm obeying you. I'm trying to do my best. And then this happens. Why? This does not make sense. Well, you see, God's perspective is an eternal perspective. Ours is our little part for however many years he gives us. He has eternity in mind. And not just eternity in mind, his best and our best in mind. And so we can take comfort in that. We can have peace in that. But in this part of scriptures, in this part, First Kings, you can sense the frustration of the widow. What have you done? My son has died. What have you done? I'm paraphrasing here. And Elijah even says, give me your son and takes him up. His dead son lays him on the bed. You're not supposed to touch a dead body. You can just sense and feel Elijah's frustration in this. Of God, you're, you've called me on this mission. You're here providing me through this widow. Why would you let her son die? She's obeying. She's doing it. And he literally lays down on the body three times praying. It's not just, I touched the body and carried it up, put it on my bed. Full on prostate laying on her dead son. And scripture tells us that God listened and restored his life. It's the first recorded event of God raising somebody from the dead that we've got. The why the son had to die, we don't know all the reasons. We can speculate on some of them. The widow right after that says, now I know that you are a man of God. Now that I know that my son has come back, God is God. What would that do to Elijah's faith? Strengthening that. Strengthening his inner man. And again, the stewardship part for Elijah during this is him continuing to trust God. Him praying to God in this. See, they didn't have the advantage of a phone with a smartphone, smartphone with an app on it, the Bible. You know, it's not like he could have the you version Bible playing while he's hanging out by the creek. It's not like he had commentaries and interlinear concordances where he could just really dive into scriptures, you know, while he's staying in the spare room of the widow's house. He might have had a parchment with him. We don't know for sure. Nothing like what we have to us, available to us today. It was him and God. 
And it was him in prayer with God. Next on Elijah's agenda and his mission that God's called him to is to reconfront Ahab and show back up again. Ahab greets him. Hey, is that you? The one ruining Israel? And on this part of the story, it seems like Elijah has a little bit more heads up. And this is the showdown at Mount Carmel that many of us are familiar with, especially the kids. Uh, A fantastic story of this showdown of good versus evil, of God versus Satan, and God winning triumphantly. The whole nation of Israel is invited to this showdown. And it's Elijah versus everybody, except he's got God on his side. And there are 850 false prophets there. And as the scenario gets up and sets up and the scene develops and altars are prepared and bulls are are prepared on these altars, Elijah's offering to them, hey, here's our showdown, here's the rules. If you agree to them, we'll build an altar, whichever God calls down fire and burns up the altar, that's who God is. That's who God is. Well, the false prophets, as you know, are, they fill up their deal and prepare their altar and get the bull ready. And, and they're morning till noon, it says. Praying and chanting and doing all of these things. And they're nothing. Nothing. In front of the whole nation of Israel. who was blindly and falsely following them. And... Elijah starts getting a little cocky here. Starts mocking him. Hey, maybe you should yell a little louder. Maybe, uh, and I'm, I'm inserting some paraphrase here. Maybe he needs hearing aids. Maybe he can't hear you. In the original Hebrew, it actually insinuates that Elijah's saying, hey, maybe he's in the bathroom. <laughs> maybe he had to go relieve himself. In other words, Your God's not a God. He has to go to the bathroom. (laughs) Maybe you should do it louder. And they start getting real frenzied and nervous and they're cutting themselves. And it literally says that blood's gushing over them. They're cutting themselves so bad, so desperate to be right in what they've been believing and following. Well, it never happened. So Elijah says, hey, bring 12 jugs of water. Pour it over the altar that I've prepared for God. Just so you know, it's not like I'm flicking a match behind my back here and trying to trick you guys out. Twelve jugs of water. Water's overflowing in the trench around it. And Elijah prays. Lord God, that you would know, that they would know, that there would be no question here, everybody witnessing, watching this, that you are God. <laughs> Scripture tells us that fire came from heaven. Literally, the rocks were consumed. The dust was consumed. I've never seen a fire that hot. I've been around some pretty hot fires, burning lots of trash off of job sites. And I was 10 feet away and lost my eyebrows one time. It was pretty hot. But there were still rocks when it was done. 
God showed up. And he made it very clear who is God. Not only have I sent a prophet whose name means I am God for this showdown, but I have showed up and showed you miraculously. So Elijah's filling his oats a little bit at this point. And he's like, hey, go eat because the rain's coming. And again, Scripture doesn't say exactly that Elijah's getting cocky or he's getting prideful in this, but I'm a guy. And I would be. I've got to believe that he is too. I mean, don't we sometimes? God does something huge and powerful and miraculous and we start filling our oats a little bit. And thinking it's about us a little bit more than we should be when it's really all about him. And I believe that God humbles him next. Because Elijah went to pray for the rain and God didn't answer him on the first prayer or the second or the third. Meanwhile, the whole nation is here watching still. Or the fourth. Or the fifth. By the way, before he started praying, he took all those bad prophets down the hill and slaughtered them. Came back up. Or the sixth prayer. It was the seventh prayer. And again, if I'm Elijah... And all of this just happened and the whole nation's watching me and all of a sudden God's not showing up. I'd be like, oh my goodness. (laughs) Where are you, God? Has anybody been having those prayers lately? Where are you, God? I keep praying the same thing over and over. And again, it's on God's timeline and it's on his purpose, not ours. And how many times when we look back that we've said those prayers and then when they're answered we go, yeah, God, you're right. You had that because that was perfect. And he's like, I know. (laughs) It's just us getting doubtful, losing a little bit of our faith. But sure enough, God still answered. The rain came. And I love this part. The power of the Lord. This is verse 46. I don't even know what chapter I'm in at this point. Um, I apologize. I think it's 17 or 18. But verse 46. The power of the Lord was on Elijah and he tucked his mantle under his belt and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Ahab was in a chariot. 17 miles from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. And Ahab tucked in his cloak and took off and beat the chariot. I love that. Can you imagine Ahab? There's that little, oh, I can't believe that girl. He's outrunning us. Come on. <laughs> I mean, I love that. And he gets there. And I think it's at this point, again, reading between the lines that Elijah must have had a crash. He'd been doing all of these things and God reminding him, saying, hey, I'm going to let you pray seven times before I answer you. And just all of these things for you, through you, and used you in mighty ways. And then, right here, we see Jezebel go, I can't believe that guy. Somebody go kill him. Again, my paraphrase. And he's like, Elijah gets scared and runs. And you're going, ah, scratching your head, and you read this, and you think about this. If, how? 
You literally just watched God consume rocks and dust with fire from heaven. You literally just outran a chariot for 17 miles. You're just a hairy country boy with a belt around your waist. And God's using you in all of these ways. He's fed you with dirty birds. You've, he's used you laying on a dead person to bring a son back to life. And this nobody wicked queen puts out a death threat on your head and you run. I think it's because he's every bit as human as we are today. And that God can show up in miraculous ways. And all it takes is us faltering on our stewardship of our inner person to where we forget so quickly who he is, who he says he is, and how much he loves us. And we run. And picking up here, as he ran, it says that he left his servant at Beersheba and then he continued on another day's journey. Men, I'm talking to you especially right now. Because we're all pretty plain vanilla in how we do this. Okay? We crash, we have a failure of sorts, and we run. And it says here that Elijah isolates himself by leaving his servant, no doubt a man who loved the Lord as well, leaving him behind and going on another day by himself. How many times do we as men, when we have a failure and we blow it, do we isolate ourselves thinking that that's the solution? Guys, Satan is not creative. He uses the same tactic on us every single time. Steal, kill, destroy. Isolate and destroy. It's the same every time. And even a great man like Elijah was not above falling for this. So I don't know about any of you, but I've not had any major showdowns with 850 prophets lately with the whole nation watching me. God's not sent fire out of heaven for me in any one of my prayers. He's not brought me any food by way of bird delivery. He did not raise my brother-in-law from the dead when I prayed or Leon or others. Could he? Absolutely. But he didn't. So who am I to think that I'm not going to fall in the same way? And that's what we need to guard ourselves from. After that day's journey, after he left his servant, he ended up on the floor of a cave. Laying there praying, God, just let me die. Just let me die. I have fought for you. I've obeyed you. I've done all these things. And now this woman wants to kill me. Just let me die. I'm done. I love the tenderness of God here. God sends an angel. Taps him on the shoulder. Hey, 
Here's a jug of water, and here's fresh bread breaking on the stone. Eat. Rest. God didn't come in and go, you blew it, you idiot. Isn't that what we tell ourselves? No. He showed up, here's some bread, here's some water, you're tired, you're thirsty. Rest. He ate, laid back down. Send a second angel. Here's more. I've got a journey for you. You're not done. You're not off the hook. But here is mercy and grace and fresh bread and water. Delivered by angel, not dirty birds. So Elijah got up and ate. And this must have been some really good bread because he got up and hiked 40 days and 40 nights (laughs) right after that. Because God needed to make a point with Elijah. God could have met him right there in that cave. But he didn't. He said, I want you to go to Mount Arab. Mount Arab is also Mount Sinai. The significance of that is that it's where God established his covenant with his nation through the Ten Commandments through Moses. And God needed to have a visual illustration with Elijah and a reminder of who God is. This wasn't, hey, you blew it, you know, snapped his fingers, he's gone. This is the love that God has for Elijah. This is the love that God has for us, even when we fail. I want to read this part for you. It's chapter 19, verses 9 through 13. Stand, would you, while we read this? Just stretch the legs out a minute. I know we've got a delicious breakfast sitting in our stomachs, so we may be getting sleepy. But I just want you to hear the very words of God in this part, where Elijah shows up, he gets there. It says, Suddenly the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? God loves to ask us rhetorical questions. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. God's like, I know that. I know that. In verse 11, then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains. It was shattering cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. You see, even in his failure, he understood the voice of God in that moment. He understood and heard the voice of God. The stewardship of our inner person allows for that to happen. That when The chaos of the storm is around us. We can still hear his still, small voice talking to us. 
You guys can have a seat. Do you, do you see the tenderness of God's mercy in this moment? I mean, Elijah is pridefully looking to himself and having a pity party. And God is saying and reminding him, it's not about you, brother. Silly hairy man with the leather belt. It's about me. It's about me and my purpose and my will for your life. My purpose and my will for my people. My purpose and my will for the, those to come. And guys, around 100 and, not 100, 850 years later approximately, he did it again. He didn't just show up for his one prophet on the side of a mountain. He showed up in the form of a baby. A baby that needed parents to love him, hold him, change his diaper, feed him. He humbled himself in that way through Jesus Christ. And he showed up not in fire, not in earthquakes, but he showed up as a, the son of God in flesh. He showed up and whispered tenderly into all the history of eternity. And by willingly going to the cross for our sins, the sins that separate us, we too can hear that still small whisper, even when life is going nuts around us. Even when we feel like we are facing off with 850 false prophets. When the weight of the world and all the eyes are watching us and what we do. He's there. He's there. Where are you today in this? Which part of Elijah's story do you relate most to today? Can you even hear his whisper? Are you wondering why? What in the world's going on? Why in the world would this be happening? Guys, sin is what's wrong with the world, not God. I'd like to close with this. I'd like to close by reading you to today's prayer out of this book, no less. And then we have, uh, we have one more video just for dads. Not so much on the epic save piece, but on a reflective uh, piece. And guys, I don't, I don't know who your dad is. A lot of you, I don't. Some of us have had great dads. Some of us, not so much. We've learned from every one of our dads, one way or the other. What I do know is we have a heavenly father that's perfect. So whether your dad on earth has been fantastic 
where he's been lacking or non-existent in your life, there is a heavenly father. I didn't even mention him. Makes me kind of think he was a nobody. But the heavenly father was his daddy. The title of this prayer is a prayer about Jesus longing to be gracious to us. The scripture is from Isaiah 30. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. Sounds like Elijah, doesn't it? Running. You said, we will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, you pursuers will be swift. Your pursuers will be swift till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, the floor of a cave, having a pity party like a banner on a hill. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will raise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. So I'd like to pray this over us as we close. Dear Jesus, it's a great joy to begin this day knowing you long to be gracious to us. The way you care for your people is simply irresistible and yet foolishly we do resist. There are times when riding off on swift horses looks like a great option when the demands upon us seem so far or too far outweigh the resources within us, when we reach our emotional limits and exhaust our mental reserves. When tiredness gives way to attitude and patience gives way to pettiness, even then you woo us to yourself, especially then we need you. The call to repentance and rest and quietness and trust comes to us like a kiss from heaven. Like a still, small voice, Lord, that you graciously, tenderly spoke to Elijah through. Jesus, we find great comfort in your pursuing love. I, we need again to learn our limits. Help us to say yes to the right things, no to the unnecessary things, Jesus. Help me reestablish the rhythms of a gospel-driven life. I repent of letting needs dictate my pace. I repent of trying to be my own savior yet again. I repent of doing more things for you than spending unrushed time with you. Lord, we repent of doing more things for you than spending unrushed time with you. I repent of listening to the squawking voices of human parakeets more than the comforting, still, small voice of God the Holy Spirit. Jesus, as you rise to show us compassion, we will sit down, shut up, be still, and let you. We pray with great anticipation in your merciful, mighty name.